Exodus 21 and 2 and verse 17. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. And God spoke all of these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant or his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. And right here in the Ten Commandments, you give us a vision, a picture of a new community, a new way of life that had not been in this world before. You capture our imaginations to think about what it means to love you and love our neighbor well. So I pray in these moments as we stare into the riches of your word, move upon our hearts in your Holy Spirit, to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts, to know all that is ours in the gospel. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the most prominent figures in the entirety of the Bible is David. I say David, and if you've been to Sunday school once, you've probably heard a David story. David and Goliath, that's the famous one, right? If you flip through the book of Psalms, David wrote a big chunk of them. So his name looms large in Scripture. And when we first meet him in 1 Samuel, he does not seem like he's going to be somebody that's especially important. He's the youngest member of a large, youngest son in a large family. Um, he, he does not put off the traits that you would think like, oh, immediate, especially in the ancient world. But today, too, you know, king was handsome, king was tall, king seemed strong. When you meet David, he's like a young, he's like 12. Not, not really notable, not super uh, handsome necessarily, doesn't stand out in a crowd. But it's through David that God uh, chooses him to be king over his people, to bring a sense of unity to Israel that had never existed before for them, and to bring a safety to them there in the promised land that they had never known before. That's through, and God chooses David for this incredible Work And as you read through 1 Samuel, when we first meet David, it feels like this story of incredible triumph. Because he follows another man who tried to unify the country as king, a man named Saul, who was tall, who was handsome, who was strong, who took the nation down a terrible, terrible path, and rejected God even. So you feel like David comes on the scene and it's like, but there was darkness and now there's light. David's here. It feels like triumph. He brings safety to his people they've never known. He pushes back enemies that are far stronger than them militarily. He takes God seriously in obeying God and treating others well. It feels like this big story of triumph until we hit 2 Samuel chapter 11. And this story that feels like triumph and good turns into absolute chaos. And something happens in 2 Samuel 11 that plants the seeds that cause the destruction of this kingdom generations later. Generations later. So in 2 Samuel 11, David's no longer the 12-year-old getting his sling out to fight the big giant who is you know, oppressing his people. He's a middle-aged man. And he's found the military success and he's brought peace and he's reigned for about 10 years um, we have to guesstimate on how old he is here, but the, the, the best guess I could come up with looking at timelines and stuff, he's about in his mid-50s in Second Samuel 11. 
And he's no longer going out with the army to protect the borders from the encroaching of the armies of the other nations. David stays back in Jerusalem, and he's got his beautiful palace, which is very far from you know, sleeping among his sheep in the hills when he was a young shepherd. And he's in this palace. And one night, he's looking out, and he kind of becomes a peeping Tom, in a sense. He sees a woman, a very beautiful woman, and he's overcome with desire. He sees her, and he wants her. And he asks after who she is. He doesn't recognize her right away. He asks who she is, and he finds out that she's the wife of one of his army's most prominent warriors. And that doesn't stop David. It doesn't stop him at all. I won't go into all the details of the story. I'm actually going to be preaching about this very specific incident during Advent, so in December. But that deep desire in his heart for that woman, when he looked at her and wanted her and coveted her, that deep desire led him to violate her body and her marriage led him to sexual assault. It led him to lie. It led him to steal. It led him even to murder to arrange the death of her husband so he could have her for himself. In other words, the coveting in David's heart led him to break all the other commandments. He broke every single one of the other commandments because of the coveting in his heart for this woman that remained unchecked. Now, none of us are kings. We're not King David's. I don't move, you know, I'm not a mover or shaker in the same way where I can do something and it has reverberating effects for an entire nation. Neither are you. But the immense danger of desires in our hearts that go unchecked, desires in our hearts that go unanalyzed, in other words, desires in our hearts that we do not entrust to Jesus, it's a very real danger for us as well. And the question I have this morning is how can it be rooted out? Will it be enough to just say, stop? Stop desiring? No, it won't. We cry out like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 that we read, right? Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? I think if we're adults especially, we've all been in that moment. Who, you know, what is wrong with me? What can I do? The answer, thanks be to God who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we're talking about this morning in the 10th commandment. How to face the reality of coveting and desiring in our heart and how to address it. So we're going to break this sermon up into three sections like we've done for all these 10 commandments uh, sermons. And the first one's this, who are we in the gospel? Now, I'll do a little bit of recap because we've talked about the, there's a lot going on in the Ten Commandments. And as I've said every single week, the principle that underlies the Ten Commandments and really underlies all of Scripture is that grace goes first, always. Moses does not arrive on the scene to the enslaved Israelites with a list of ten things to do. That's not what the Ten Commandments are. Here, do these things and then I'll free you. No, Moses shows up and he speaks not to the people specifically. He speaks to the one that holds them bound. He says, let them go. And what we see in the ten plagues is God systematically destroys, not just Pharaoh, but all the gods of Egypt. That's, the plagues were very specifically fitted. Like, you think this God is powerful. 
God is more powerful. And he destroys that thing that undergirded all of Egypt. He brings his people out of slavery apart from anything they did whatsoever. And only after they're free does he give them instructions about how to live. And that's what the Ten Commandments are. Grace goes first. Grace goes first. And then God instructs us how to live as people who have found his grace. And the first four commandments, they fix our eyes firmly on God. They're about our relationship with God vertically, in a sense. The last six commandments are about our relationship with one another. If grace goes first and those first four commandments are true, what does that mean for my life with other people? That's what the last six commandments are. And so the commandment about honoring fathers and mothers, it's about how to treat the things and the people that make us, us, the histories as weighty. How to relate to that. We talked about you shall not uh, kill. It's not just like don't murder somebody. It's being about the life of other human beings who are made in the image and likeness of God. To be about their lives above all things, including possessions. You shall not steal. We talked about that. You are not things and you are not your things. You are not your stuff. We talked about how our bodies matter and how our words matter. And this morning we're at the 10th commandment where we learn this. Who are we in the gospel? We are people whose hearts matter to God. Our hearts matter to God. When I say heart, I don't mean your physical heart. Like your heart, your physical heart matters to God too. Take care of it. Eat your Cheerios. That's heart healthy, right? That may just be marketing. Um, So take care of your physical heart. Yes, that's good. But when scripture talks about heart, it means essentially our inner life. Not just our emotions, Scripture talks about our hearts thinking and pondering and meditating. Scripture speaks about our hearts feeling, of course. Scripture speaks about our hearts willing or desiring or wanting. Um, the, the category is kind of bigger. We tend to say heart, head, heart, hands, right? We think, we feel, we do. All of those are kind of encapsulated under heart when Scripture uses that word. In Scripture, heart and soul and spirit and mind, those are all kind of synonyms describing the same thing. Our non-physical self, not our bodies. Um, So, to say that our hearts matter to God is to say that our inner life matters to Him. And to say that our hearts matter to God means this, that God does not treat us like a parent that only cares that we do what He says and that we don't act up. I may be revealing more about myself this morning than I intend to, but God's instruction to us is not Him saying, don't embarrass me in public. It's not, we're about to go in this store, don't touch anything. That's not what God's instruction to us is. He's not just a parent that cares about us acting right. He gives us instructions, and He tells us most of the time why, Because He's not just after us doing the right stuff. He's God. If He wanted us just to do stuff, He could flip a switch and make us do it. What God's doing is He engages us in all of who we are because He doesn't want us to just do the right things. He wants us to love the right things. He wants us to meditate on the right things and to desire the right things because that is what we were made to do. And when we meditate on and do and desire and want the things that are good and beautiful and true, it makes our hearts come alive because it is us tapping into what we were designed 
to be in the first place all along. So God's not that harsh dad that's like, just listen to what I say. Just do it. I mean, you know, sometimes doing the right thing because it's the right thing, that's a reality of life. So don't hear me knocking that necessarily. But God's not just after us doing some stuff. If he wanted to do that, he could have created robots. And he didn't. He wants us to love the right things. He wants us to desire that and to grow in loving and desiring and meditating on the things that are good and beautiful and true. Our hearts matter to God. You're not a pawn on a chessboard. You're not a soldier on the field that he just wants to fall in line. Don't stop thinking about, you know, and I love veterans. Stop thinking about God as a drill sergeant, though, because he's not. He's not. He doesn't yell at you, call you stupid, want you to be beaten in line or any of those things. That's not what he's about. He is passionate. He is zealous for your heart. And that's why he gives us the Ten Commandments. To guide us on how to direct our hearts, our inner life. Now it's easy to talk about obedience. There was a season in my life where obedience felt like a cuss word. Because I just, it had, it had become weighted so much with my misconceptions about what it was that I didn't even like hearing the word. But it's easy to talk about obedience to God but miss his heart entirely. And ideas of religion, about how to live, that are detached from the reality of the love of God and Jesus, they are the most dangerous thing in the world. And if we miss that God is passionate for us, that God is about our hearts and after who we are, if we miss his heart and we keep all those religious trappings, then the trappings just keep us trapped. It's all they can do. If we miss Jesus for stuff that surrounds Jesus, He does not want that for us. Because our hearts will shrivel up because we're disconnected from that source of our life and thriving, which is His love for us if we miss His heart. Because that's all of religion detached from the heart of God can do. But, when we realize that what we think, that what we want, that what we feel is important to God, then we can see the greater depth of His love for us. And we can see God less as an overbearing Father who just wants us to fall in line, and we can see Him more like the Dad who wants our best, who makes clear His love for us does not depend on what we do, who guides us in what is right because it is good for us, and who invites us into the intimacy of this relationship our whole life long. It's because who we are matters to God that He is intent to redeem all of us. I've used the terminology before. It's from joy to the world. God's uh, blessings will flow as far as the curse of sin is found. God is intent to redeem all that was lost in the fall. All of who we are is impacted by sin. And because of that, He is going to heal all of who we are. That is what His redemption is doing. It's why when God came to earth in Christ. When God took on flesh to become one of us, He didn't just put on like a flesh robot. It wasn't like... He took on an entire human nature. Heart and body. Or body and soul. An entire human nature. Jesus was not just a body that God inhabited. No, Jesus was fully human in every way that we are. He had a body. He had a soul or heart. 
that thought, that felt, that desired. And in all the ways that we have failed in, in, in our life, in our human bodies, in our human hearts, He did not. In all the ways that we give in to temptations, He did not. Why? Well, the book of Hebrews talks about it. Because of the joy set before Him. And what was the joy set before Jesus in His time on earth? He knew that He was saving us. That was His great delight. That I am bringing Matt home to God. That I'm bringing Brandon. I'm bringing Astra home to God. That I'm bringing Christy home. That was His great joy and motivation in His time here. God took to Himself an entire human nature. He did not fail into temptation, fall into temptation. And all of that made Him a perfect substitute for us. Because that which was lost in a human body and soul is redeemed in a human body and soul. The eternal Son of God taking to Himself this human nature. And He is able to sympathize us in weakness so He doesn't shame us in our struggle and in our weakness. Because as... <laughs> As wild as this sound, God knows our weakness personally. He sympathizes with our weakness. And He could stand and face the judgment due against our sin that He did not deserve, but He took on willingly so that the reality of our sin could be dealt with, could be handled, and we could be free. Our hearts matter to God it's why Jesus faced the cross, why He was raised, the dead, raised from the dead, why He has given His people His Holy Spirit to empower and, and, and awaken our hearts to Him so that we can think and we can feel and we can desire after Him. We can follow Him in these things. And that's how we learn that our hearts matter to God. Not just because He tells us, because but because we are, in a sense, loved into loving. It is how we learn what love is. It is how we learn that our hearts matter, because we are loved into loving by God. It's the same way I talked about it last week. We were talking about how our words matter. How does a baby learn how to talk? You don't hand a baby a book, and you don't say, Talk. Talk, baby. <laughs> right? Baby learns how to talk hearing their parent or their adult talk, being spoken to and hearing them talk. And they learn to, uh, to, to form the words and to verbalize. And that's how we learn that our words matter. We talked about that last week. This is how we learn that our hearts matter. Same thing is true when we talk about thinking and feeling and desiring. God gives us His spiritual life by grace. He awakens our hearts to the reality of His love. We're loved into loving. And He shows us His love so that we know what it means. And so He engages our minds with wisdom and knowledge. He, in a sense, invites us to think His thoughts after Him. You know, Christianity... It, is not a religion that asks you to leave your mind at the door. Not at all. Not at all. Thinking th God's thoughts after Him is a deep reservoir that can satisfy the mind. It is true wisdom from God. And so He teaches us how to think by inviting us to think after Him. Not just telling us what to think, but, but inviting us into the depth and the beauty of this wisdom. He engages our minds. He invites us to desire after Him, to learn what He loves and to love it, to learn what He values and to value it. 
And what does, he, what does he teach us? He teaches us people matter to God. And so as we love others, we are copying God. We're not just like, okay, people matter. I've got to love my neighbor and go find the neighbors that are worth loving or not annoying to love or not, you know, um, it's not a pain to love them. No, we follow God in loving and our hearts are awakened to a new way of life. We find out that God does not value wealth in the sense that we do. God does not value, quote-unquote, building a dream if you mean like just putting all your resources toward this house or this thing. Houses aren't bad. I live in a house. I love my house. You know what I'm saying, though? God shows us what really matters. Because when God came to earth in Christ Jesus, He did not build a house, at least not the one that we can go find today. We can't point to a mansion in Israel and say that's where Jesus lived. He built this house. The house of Jesus is the church universal. It's us. Scripture talks about us being bricks in His temple, in a sense. Living stones. That's what mattered to God. Finding God's lost children and bringing them home. That's what mattered to Him. It wasn't wealth. It wasn't status. It wasn't notoriety. Forget all of that. So why do those things capture our hearts so? But God's leading us to desire after Him, to value after Him. We are loved into loving. He's shown us what to value because He's valued us, and so it teaches us to value us. I'm rambling here, but the, the, the point is that it is not just God telling us stuff. It's not God even just saying, your heart matters to me. It's Him proving it. It's Him showing it over and over again. God cares about what you think, what you feel, what you want. And He instructs us here in the 10th commandment not just to do something or to not do something. He speaks of us coveting our inner life. And let's unpack that a little bit more. That's our second section. How do we live as God's free people? He speaks here, do not covet. Now, the 10th commandment is unique among all the other commandments. I've talked about the misconceptions we can have about uh, you shall not kill, for instance, Sixth Commandment. And you can read that say, like, don't murder anybody and I'm good. I did the Sixth Commandment. Check. But that's to miss the whole thing. But the reason why people read it that way is because God gave that as one sentence. Do not kill. Right? So that's kind of easy to take that and not run with it, not treat it like a springboard and say, okay, that's just what it's about. The rest of the commandments are actions. Right? So do not steal. Well, I can say, well, I didn't steal. Check. Did that one. But right here in the 10th commandment, it's unique because it doesn't actually talk about a physical action. It talks about a desire. It talks about our inner life specifically. It's unique among the 10 commandments. that It, it doesn't feel like it's just don't do this action or do this thing. It is telling you specifically, do not covet. It's turning... The, uh, is turning the microscope up <laughs> to go a little bit deeper. And uh, people have realized this throughout history because there's so many conversations about how, you know, it would be impossible to actually make a law with the Ten, ten Commandments, or the Tenth Commandment specifically, because, like, how are you going to know? How are you going to know? You can't prosecute somebody for what they thought or what they had in their heart. There's an entire episode about, of West Wing about this, actually. Um, they talk about the Tenth Commandment. They're like, you can't make a law out of that. Right? 
But here, God lets us know that he's not just given legislation to, to make us act right. He's concerned about our hearts. Do not covet. Now, to covet is to look at somebody else's life and want it. Not just to look at something. I don't mean like your friend gets a new car and you like it. That's not coveting. I, want, I love Matt's car. I don't covet your car. I'm not going like, to try to steal it or anything. <laughs> See? It's part of my trick. Anyway, no, that, that's not what coveting is. Coveting is to look at the, the life of somebody else and despise your own life, in a sense, and to want it, to churn it over in your mind, to obsess over it in your desires, to be overcome in your feelings. To covet is, in a sense, the last step before action. As this idea is unpacked in the Old Testament about coveting, it's remarkable to me because I think of coveting, and I'll be honest, I think of it as like a poor person sees something a rich person has. This is usually the way we talk about it too. Somebody has something I don't have. I'm poor, they're rich, and I really want it. But God's telling me like, no, just be content with what you've got. You're good. In fact, that's kind of how it was told to me <laughs> growing up. That that's what coveting is. But as this is unpacked in the Old Testament... In every place but one, when it starts to talk about coveting, it talks about the rich who have a lot and see something someone else has and begin to manipulate the situation to get it. Like King David. We've already talked about that. He was king. Nobody higher than him in Israel. And he's got this lowly soldier with a beautiful wife. He sees her and he desires it so much to get her from that man that he just about destroys his kingdom. For a couple moments in the end. It was a rich man. Or later on, King Ahab. We, have, we see this in, uh, in 1 Kings. He's a king of Israel like 150 years after David. He begins to want this vineyard that is right beside his palace. He's like, that man, that's a good one. That vineyard is awesome. He wants it. So he goes and he tries to buy it from the man who owns it, who's like, no, I also like that vineyard, and it is mine. I'm not selling it to you. Well, he begins to, he, he introduces trumped up false charges that will get this man the death penalty. He is killed and executed in the justice system, and then the king gets the vineyard. That's the coveting. It's not somebody, most often not, poor, looking at something, somebody who has a lot of stuff and wanting it. It is those who have lots of things, whose hearts have been captured by having things and getting their way, turning their eye to other people and saying, well, I can justify mistreating them to get this thing. After all, I want it. You know, David's a power, powerful example of the danger of coveting and when our desires run unchecked. So the question in front of us, we've talked about the danger of coveting, is how do we live as people who are walking in this truth that our hearts matter to God? And I think it begins when we open our eyes to the reality of coveting and the danger of wanting more. The danger of wanting more. In a sense, coveting may be the most prominent sin in our country and in our culture. We are so informed and so 
uh, formed by you know, the, the culture that surrounds us. It's like the water we swim in. And we live in a culture that is uniquely designed to make us covet, to make us want, to, to, to make us justify doing wacky stuff to get the things that we want. You know, I, I read an economist from the era of World War II. So in the United States, you had the Great Depression, a time of great want. And before World War II, like, your wardrobe, you might have, like, two shirts. You just got those two shirts. You got a couple pair of pants. You got one pair of boots. Like, that's kind of, you know, that is kind of what it was. You're making T-shirts out of sacks and stuff. But the idea was, like, uh, if you bought an overcoat, you were going to have that overcoat for 30 years. You're not getting a new coat next season. Like, this one's got, you might even pass it down to your kids. That's just an example from clothing. World War II happened, and economically, it was massive for the United States, the allied uh, countries, for Britain as well, and France. It, all of a sudden, industry just, whoo, there's money everywhere. And economists figured out, like, we got to take advantage of this. All of a sudden, there's so much cash in the system. And I read this economist this week. He said this in, I believe, 1951. Our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life. Consumption, consuming, taking, and using something up. Consumption, our way of life, that we convert the buying and the selling of goods into rituals. That we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction, in consumption. He was not a Christian. He was not a believer. But he's talking clearly in religious language, languages here. And it's one of the men that, you know, among other ad men and marketers, mad men even, um, shaped the post-war culture that we are still kind of inheritors of. And he's saying right here, we have to make consumption our way of life. That is what it means to live as we consume. We've got to create rituals. And they've been really good at this because I can't you, you know the endorphin rush we get from shopping maybe we all don't get it but we talk about like retail therapy even right right <laughs> let's not point at one another you imagine you know how much joy I've gotten in the immediate scrolling through guitar equipment that I never bought or I did buy or then I'm planning like I gotta oh I gotta get this thing Retail therapy. We do it in those rituals of shopping, of looking, of going, of purchasing, of pulling it out, taking the tags off, putting it on for the first time. They are almost religious to us. They give us nourishment in a sense. We love it. The marketers did a really good job on us. <laughs> to the point that I was speaking about you know, a wardrobe in the 30s, you know, that was obviously a time of the Great Depression, but if I took you home to my closet today, you'd be shocked. If I, if I had a time machine and brought my great-great-grandfather to my house today and let him walk into my walk-in closet, I think he'd be embarrassed. <laughs> How many shoes do you have? Why do you have two of the same pair? Why do you have this many shirts? Now, I'm not saying go purge. I mean, maybe go purge your closet. We probably all could. But 
I'm just saying, we live in a vastly different world even than a few generations ago, and they've been so good at it that we don't realize it. They've been so good at crafting that, and we are shaped in that in so many ways. In fact, one of my favorite authors, a guy named James K. Smith, he has this entire section in one of his books where he describes what you think when you start reading the chapter is a religious experience of going on a pilgrimage to a temple. And he reveals at the end he's actually been describing going to a shopping mall. He talks about bringing in your sacrifices to each of the altars, which are the stores. And they're offering to you in the ads the promise of a good life. You take this to the priest and the priest takes your offering and gives you a gift back from the gods. And it's just, you know, the first time I read it, I was like, I'm never going shopping again. That wasn't true. Um, anyway, I'm camping out here for some reason. Where, where am I? Uh, <laughs> but the guy who said that, the quote I read a minute ago, he was saying that the kind of culture that was happening in America was one that demanded people be, dr- be driven by their desire for more, to consume. And not to consume in a healthy way like, uh, you know, in, in a forest Trees consume from their roots, but they put out and they provide for the other plants around them. It's an ecosystem that works in tandem for everything. But we live in a world that invites us to consume like fire, which just burns up and destroys and leaves nothing fruitful behind. But we're told we need more. We need more. Never be at rest because there's always more. Get a side job and hustle because you need more. That's exactly what advertisement is telling us. It's exactly what we tell ourselves we need more. Which means that living out the reality that our hearts matter to God, living out the reality of the Tenth Commandment is going to be especially difficult, but that makes it all the more crucial for us to live and walk in the kind of freedom in our hearts that God has for us. We've got to see this for what it is. So the question for us is what to do. If this intense desire captures our heart and it begins to dominate our thoughts and our feelings and our wants, that's problematic. But shouldn't we just stifle it? Like, like I've already said it. I've already made us all feel a little bit embarrassed, I'm sure. Is it enough to feel a little bit embarrassed and then you go out? No, that'll get you till Tuesday. Embarrassment and stifling and just saying, Stop! is not enough for really anything. We know that doesn't work. It's not enough for us to hear the Tenth Commandment and say, coveting's a problem, so I'll just stop coveting. Because what God is doing, before I get to the good news here in a second, is He's actually leading us to dig a little bit deeper. Not just to look at the reality that we have desires, but to ask why. I can't remember who originally said this, but to find the sin underneath the sin. Because a lot of times with something like coveting, we think that's the problem. We'll put a band-aid on that, but then the reality that's happening underneath it will just pop up somewhere else. Because I could say I'm not shopping anymore, I'm not consuming anymore, but the reality is my heart idolatry is going to pop up in a completely different place if I just put a lid on it there. Because what's really happening, this push for more, 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 What's really happening when we covet is we are worshiping. We're worshiping. We're worshiping false gods who cannot deliver what we want them to. 
The Tenth Commandment tells us not to covet or desire what belongs to others, and it is essentially telling us the same thing as the First Commandment, which told us what? I'm the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. It's telling us essentially the same thing. Because a God's anything that captures our hearts and dominates our thinking and our feelings and our desires. This is the good news and this is the superpower of the gospel. This is the superpower of the gospel, friends. That we are not just shown the danger of coveting. That God is peeling our hearts off of our idols so that we can place them on Him. It is not just showing the darkness. It is showing us a greater beauty. That's what we see when we look into the face of Jesus. When we see who God revealed Himself to be in Jesus. When we look at the reality of gospel, it is God peeling our hearts off of those idols. Peeling our thoughts and our desires and our feelings so that we can turn them to Him and find them satisfied in a way that all the coveting and all the getting in the world could never do. God is wooing us away from these false gods that we can put our hearts to Him. He shows us most clearly in the life and work of Jesus so that we will chase, stop chasing after and longing after things that can ne- never satisfy and turn our hearts to Him. So, our thoughts. We can meditate on the glory of Jesus. I don't mean, mm, I mean spend time purposefully in our thoughts, walking through the glory of who He is. We can marvel at how He lived His life. We can marvel at the depth of His love for us. We can marvel and meditate on the comprehensiveness of His redemption as far as the curse of sin is found. I heard a speaker a couple of weeks ago who was talking about one of the ways she does this. She's a woman who has, uh, she lives in long-term disability. And she said, there are days that I hate my life. I hate the body I live in. I hate the reality of my day-to-day existence. What she'll do in prayer is, let's say her legs hurting. She will stop in that moment of quiet and place her hand on her leg and say, you're going to be hurt. God loves you. God loves this leg. She'll walk through her body or she'll walk through her mind and say those things. And it's a recalibration. It's her able to meditate and ponder on the depth of God's love for her and His commitment for her. And as she's thinking these thoughts, it's transforming her heart. In our feelings, in our affections, we can find in Him a love deeper than we can find anywhere and in anyone. For His is a love for us that we did not earn and cannot lose. It's a love that's not dependent on anything within us to make us lovely. It's a love that fixes on us and makes us lovely. We are lovable and lovely because He's decided to love us. Not because He looked at us and saw anything lovable and said, Man, I really like that one's hair. (laughs) I really like his sense of humor. Maybe He does. I hope God likes my sense of humor. Um... His love makes me lovely. And I am loved. And I can meditate on that. And I can feel that. And when I say feelings, I don't mean coming into church and shouting and raising your hands. It might be that sometimes. We might be so overwhelmed with God's love that we can't help but do that. And that's wonderful. But in our day-to-day life, take moments to feel deeply that you are somebody 
that, as I said earlier, the God of all the universe has turned his ear to. That you have that immediate access at any moment. Uh, You are a delighted in child that God moved heaven and earth to find to bring home. In our desires, we can long for Him, to know Him more. We can trace our desires to a deeper desire for Him and for home. In Scripture, in the Old Testament especially, this is God's face. They talk about longing for God's face. It's the only way the Scripture writers could figure out to say, I want God. I want His face turned toward me. I want to see who He is in all His fullness. And it's also why God in number 6 told Aaron, uh, the first priest, and it's the reason why we use this benediction every every week, for God to assure us that His face is turned toward us to shine on us and be gracious to us. His face is turned toward us to give us peace. In our desires, we can long for Him more. We can hear Him testify to us that He is our Father and we are His children. We can long for the reality of where things are going, the new heavens and new earth, where the fog and stain of sin and the brokenness of our world is removed. And we'll see the reality and depth of His love with all the blinders off, with all the hurdles gone. This is the truth. The only true way for us to move beyond a world of coveting what we do not have is to have our hearts turned to the One who has us. It's the superpower of the gospel and how we face the reality of our heart idolatries and our desiring and the more, more, more that is just destroying us. To quote uh, one of my favorite theologians, this is a uh, 17th century Puritan, uh, John Owen. He said, By beholding the glory of Christ by faith, we shall find rest for our souls. Our minds are apt to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distresses, ungoverned passions, and lusts. By these our thoughts are filled with chaos and darkness and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. For to be spiritually minded is peace. So how does this freedom lead us to mission, to to close out the sermon? The Ten Commandments are like the Constitution and Bill of Rights for God's kingdom. They're the foundational documents that tell us what this kingdom's going to be about. The foundational words that set the tone for what God has redeemed us for in this world, to love Him and to love others. That's why Jesus summarized it that way in His ministry. What is, what is the most important commandment? Love God and love others. All of the law and prophets hang on these two things. That's what Jesus said. The truth is, coveting spoils our relationship for one, with one another. Coveting and wanting, it spoils the way of life God has for us. When we want things more than we want the good of others, we begin to think in ways that make things more important than others. We begin to justify it. In, any ma- in, in many ways, the way we treat one another is the measure of how deeply the gospel of Jesus has truly captured our hearts And I don't say that to make us feel guilt. I say that to cause us to turn and call us to turn our hearts to Jesus. It's summarized in one of my favorite quotes from the Scottish pastor named Robert Murray McShane. Learn much of the Lord Jesus 
I said this earlier. Learn much of the Lord Jesus for every one look you take at your own heart. So right now we're having some difficult moments thinking about our coveting and our desiring, right? It feels a little bit of conviction, perhaps. For every one look right now that you are taking at your own heart, take ten looks at Jesus. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. For He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty and such yet meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the worst. Live much in the smiles of God. This looking at Jesus, in truth, turns us to look toward others. It includes that. Because the shining light of His face is not only for you and me. It is for many in our community who do not yet know His glory and goodness. And how does those who do not yet know His grace see His glory and goodness? They begin not only to hear about the gospel of Jesus, of course that's crucial... But they begin to experience the difference of people who are having their hearts pried off false gods and turned to Him. They begin to experience people who are living much in the smiles of God and basking in the radiance of His love. And how will they know that? They'll know that in a big way through our generosity. Because generosity is the opposite of coveting. It's the opposite of coveting. Coveting is looking at somebody else's life and saying, I want that. Generosity is looking at somebody else's life and saying, they need this. And I can empty my bank account. Or not necessarily empty, but I can help. I can give here. It's the opposite of coveting. The kind of open-handed living I spoke about a few weeks ago and the commandment about not stealing. For it is only people who are not eat up with desire for more who can truly live generously and in contentment. And I don't mean giving money to the church. I don't, that's important enough, yes. But I don't mean writing a check and saying, all right, I did my generosity. I mean a completely strange way of life in our world that pours itself out in ways that seem foolish to everyone else. A kind of life that only makes sense if Jesus died and rose from the dead. Not just civic engagement, that's good, but I mean a weird way of life, especially in our culture, that sees the good of others as important as our own. And this kind of way of life can only happen because we keep looking at Jesus. We keep uh, living much in His smiles and we find our hearts ravished. A way of life that turns to our neighbors and does not lead with condemnation because they don't live up to the lifestyle we think is right. After all, as we talked about this morning, all the no, stop, you shouldn't do that, it doesn't work. The Apostle Paul said it in Romans 7. The good law, do not covet, came to me. But what my heart did with that is it spun it and I just coveted even more. As we live in a world, you know, every few weeks there's a new article about how we live in a post-Christian world and what's the church going to do. But all of our tisk-tisk in the world, it's not going to do a single good thing. Not at all. And after all, that's not how any of our hearts were won to Jesus either. I've never heard a single person who lives in the the vibrance of God's love, say, I was shamed into faith, and it's the best thing for me. 
Never happened. Not a single conversation I've heard. No, the way of life in clothes that I'm talking about is one, knows, is one that knows what is true for us, that grace goes first, that God seeks us out in love. It is one that knows that that is true for us and can be turned toward others because we know it can be true for them as well. And we can offer them the only true and lasting thing we have to offer, the love of God in Christ. And that's what can lead us to open the doors of our church. That's what can lead us to open the doors of our homes, to get creative about how to love others and creative about how to be generous. It's the, only, it's the kind of thing that will open our hearts to others, that they would see that their hearts matter and that they can find in Jesus the thing that they're actually chasing after, a love that will not let them go. So friends, your heart, your heart matters to God. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the goodness of the Gospel. Thank You that our hearts are captured and are being captured and are being transformed and that You invite us not just to hear some right stuff to do, but You show us who You are and You truly love us into loving to cause us to value the deepest part of who we are, who we are in You, to value the truth of the Gospel and to know that what you are at work doing is not just trying to get us to do some right stuff, but you are prying our hearts off those idols that cannot satisfy and only lead to destruction. And you are shining the glory of your grace to us that we may be captured by that greater beauty, that greater goodness, that greater truth. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.